welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show or download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on attacking the supply chain of deadly illicit fentanyl. To learn more, visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illicit fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a counter-narcotic conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. For many years, the United States and various governments cooperated on countering narcotics. But we kind of lost that recently. The relations between the United States, China, and Mexico have become cold. I spoke to drug experts visiting the United States from China on a diplomatic mission who told me that it was something about our unique American drug culture that was the basis of our fentanyl crisis. Get that? They blamed us and our culture for fentanyl overdoses or poisonings. They did not understand the power of drug supply. We have a fentanyl problem because of supply. We have less of a heroin problem because of supply. Methamphetamine is cheap, abundant, and hence the meth problem. In March 2023, Mexico's president denied the massive evidence that their country produces or consumes fentanyl. He, like the Chinese, said fentanyl was a United States problem. International narco cooperation seemed dead, but recently things have changed. In November 2023, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Talks included a focus on fentanyl. After this meeting, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced plans to target the supplies of precursor chemicals used to synthesize fentanyl, as well as pill press machines. Mexico President Andres Manuel López Obrador said he agreed to work with President Xi on the flow of chemical precursors. The Chapitos, the sons of King Pinel Chapo, sent a message to their cartel buddies, stop making fentanyl. How do you think they sent that message? An email? An Instagram post? They sent the message in drug dealer language. They killed some drug dealers and covered their dead bodies with fentanyl pills. They meant it. Stop making fentanyl. What do we need to know about narco-terrorism, foreign drug trade into the United States, and the appearance of cooperation between the United States, China, and Mexico? To help us in this discussion, I invited an expert in narco-terrorism. Derek Maltz retired from the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, after 28 years of dedicated service and is currently working for PenLink LTD as the Executive Director of Government Relations. Maltz has experience with the capture of Sinaloa cartel kingpin El Chapo Guzman and narco-terrorism operations that include Hezbollah, the Taliban, and Afghan drug criminals. Mr. Waltz works tirelessly, and you are going to enjoy his passion that supports families around America who lost loved ones to fentanyl poisonings and to educate the public on this escalating public health and security threat. He is frequently seen in national and local news, radio, and testifies to Congress as a subject matter expert. 
To learn more about Derek Maltz, check out the High Truth show notes. Derek Maltz, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much, Doctor. I appreciate you inviting me on today. Uh, Derek, I'm very excited to have you on because of what you do, your knowledge. Uh, you're kind of a celebrity uh, in this thing, but just because you have such a clear, perfect, trustworthy voice. And, and I really treasure having this conversation with you. Uh, but my first question to you is, you know, you're a, um, a bright man. What made you go to law enforcement way back then? How did that sustain you? T tell us a little bit about your career choice. Great question. So I went to uh, Syracuse University as an accounting major trying to follow my brother's footsteps. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, my father was a legendary DEA agent in New York City. He ran the uh, oldest and largest drug task force in Manhattan. And he kind of wanted me to follow his footsteps. So he pushed me into the direction of DEA. It was never something that I like had the passion to do at the time. It must be in my DNA because my father also had me on surveillance when I was 13 years old, following, you know, potential fugitives into buildings and everything else. That's another story for another day. But my father actually wanted me in the DEA and he provided um, the uh, information. And then I got a job offer when I was 22 years old, right out of college. Wow. So he, it, it, dad has a huge influence. Yeah. And by the way, uh, doctor, back in the day, it was a little bit different. Folks like my father had a lot of influence in the hiring process of agents. You can't get away with some of that stuff today. Uh, so I was very, very pleased. And I've had, you know, great career, 28 years. I never woke up and never said, oh, man, I got to go to work. It was always exciting, something different. I was always very passionate. And so, you know. Public services in my family. My brother died in Afghanistan, 2003, in helicopter crash, Operation Enduring Freedom. So, we're American patriotic family that wants to, you know, serve the public and keep Americans safe. Thank you for your service, Derek. And it, it, it um, hearing that breaks my heart to say I know that that pain of losing your brother never, ever goes away. Yeah. Um. Um. So big sacrifice for the whole family. Um, looking back at your career, you've done incredible work, lots of various drug cartels and and cases. Do you have an outstanding uh, drug case that you're especially proud of or want to share? Well, well, again, you know, when I ran the Special Operations Division, what was special about it is that it wasn't about any one agency. It wasn't about any one individual. It was about a unity of effort and synchronization of all authorities and all agencies working with a focused goal of keeping Americans safe, okay? So as the leader of that particular place, um, everything we did was, you know, involving many, many people, okay? So as a, as a leader, uh, you know, it was very rewarding to me when uh, the U.S. government put together incredible intelligence that was synchronized by my center that was provided to the DEA uh, regional director in Mexico who worked with the Mexican Marines, which led to the capture of Chapo Guzman, the leader of the Sinaloa cartel. That was the first time. That was, uh, you know, about uh, a couple of months before I retired. But it was so rewarding because it was like almost from my standpoint, winning the Super Bowl, right? Chapo Guzman is in custody. After all the years, he was like the Harry Houdini of drug traffic as he always got away. But because everyone came together, which was one of my areas of expertise. 
pulling people together for a common goal. And that's sometimes hard in law enforcement. I mean, it's hard in any job, but honestly, like, so when it comes to drug cases, that particular case was re rewarding. But another case that I want to hit on is because it's a very unique case and it's been in the news recently. So we got called one day to the White House. So President George Bush's, uh, you know, terrorism and crime uh, director asked the DEA if we could look at a national security threat named Victor Bout. Victor Bout was a multi-millionaire, billionaire, whatever, arms trafficker in Russia who was providing uh, weapons to all bad guys around the world for many years. So much so that the White House was asking DEA to put together an operation to go after him. So our team actually deployed. We did undercover operations and we had informants infiltrated into him. And we actually got him in custody in Thailand uh, many years ago. And he was extradited successfully after that, was sentenced to 25 years in jail. But unfortunately, recently there was a prisoner swap that was made with the WNBA player, Brittany Griner. And the, the current administration decided to swap Brittany Griner, who was in prison in Russia, for Victor Boot, who was here in the United States. So that case, to me, was incredibly uh, satisfying, but quite disappointing because this is this is a guy who is a huge national security threat, and America, uh, from the highest levels, wanted him off the streets, which we did. But unfortunately, he was sent back, and he's now out there working with Putin and everyone else in Russia. So, those are the two things that come to mind. But that was more of a team effort. You know, there was other things that I did personally, which I could talk about if needed. But uh, that's that that's something that was pretty exciting. That's amazing. That's also disappointing in kind of watching what's going on now with Hamas. When you give up a prisoner of notoriety, you're going to pay for the price for that later. Right. And, and just so you know, um, Doctor, one of the things that I'm very proud of is that we built up a capability at the Special Operations Division called the Counter Narco Terrorism Operations Center. It's known in the Beltway as the CINTOC, C N T O C. The reason we had to do that is because the DEA recognized uh, for many years that the terrorists were increasingly turning into, you know, turning to drug trafficking, arms trafficking, human smuggling, kidnapping, all these criminal activities for, for funding because the traditional funding streams had dried up. So for us in the DEA, because we have the largest law enforcement presence around the globe, you know, U.S. law enforcement presence. Uh, we actually contributed post 9-11 to building up capabilities to help the FBI and the intel community and others. But the reason I bring that up is because a lot of these terrorist groups like Hezbollah, for example, uh, they, they, they are involved in major international drug trafficking money laundering. I mean, we connected through Project Cassandra, Hezbollah to the Mexican cartels, moving billions of dollars around the world based on drug trafficking sales. So whether it's ISIS with the Captagon or Hamas or these other groups, they need funding to operate. Iran, okay, who's behind all of this stuff, they uh, don't have unlimited sources of funding and Hezbollah and these terror groups need money. So criminal activity is becoming very, very important in their enterprise. That's, that's very interesting. I don't think people realize that you go from Hezbollah, which is in Lebanon and funded by Iran, working with Mexico, it becomes very complicated. What are the the hotspots that uh, that terrorism 
and drugs go together today. So it used to be Afghanistan's associated with heroin. Is, is that still the case or did is that kind of tapered yeah, so off? So Afghanistan obviously is a big producer of heroin, but now that the Taliban runs the country, of course, we don't have really great intelligence like we used to, but a lot of that heroin is being consumed in different markets, okay? Right now, the biggest threat to the United States is clearly Mexico. And now what's really scary from a national security standpoint is Mexico is working, the Mexican cartels are working very closely with the Chinese criminal networks coming out of the CCP that are now partnering up and doing a lot of drug business together, which is actually killing Americans at record levels. So it's quite disturbing. So that's the hot spot now. The two main cartels, the Sinaloa cartel and the cartel Jalisco New Generation down there in Mexico, they have operatives everywhere in America. They are dominating all aspects of drug trafficking in America. But unfortunately, right now, synthetic drugs are a game changer in our world and in America, certainly, because it's killing at record levels. Now, recently, President Biden met with the president of China, president of Mexico, and they it seemed like they made a pact to go after the fentanyl precursors and to go after these cartels. Is that real news, fake news? Is that hopeful? Are you hopeful? Okay, so let me say it in my New York loving way, okay? I'm big on action, not words. We're within a year of the presidential election. And the White House is smart enough to know that we better start talking about fentanyl and what we're doing, because if we don't, it's going to hurt our chances of reelection. So let me give you something really simple that anyone can understand. If President, President Biden said during that day that he's committed to doing everything in his power as the president to get this crisis under control, he went on further to talk about all the people that weren't going to be with their families on Thanksgiving because they were dying from fentanyl, you know, overdoses, as they call them. I call them poisonings. But here's the point. If the president wanted to do everything in his power, then why the heck is the border wide open? Why are you giving the cartels the ability to operate with impunity and kill our American citizens at record levels? That's unacceptable. That's number one. Number two, the president made statements in the past that international drug trafficking uh, is a national security threat. So again, the same question comes out, then why would you allow the cartels to now make billions of dollars on the human smuggling and running the border, total control of the border, and invading our country from folks from 180 different countries now? So it makes no sense. But here's even something even more important. As the president, you are in charge of the CDC. And as a doctor, you would know more about this than me. So I'd love to hear your opinion about this. But right now, in America, we cannot get accurate and timely statistics from CDC on not only fentanyl deaths, fentanyl poisonings, okay? Because in order to address a problem of this magnitude, you have to understand what you're dealing with. Right now, because of Narcan, the EMS and, and doctors like you and emergency room uh, personnel and nurses are saving people every day all over the country at levels that I would never know. But it would be important for me to assess the magnitude of this problem if I knew in every state how many poisonings from fentanyl, how many were leading to deaths, 
as you know from dealing with the families, Jim Rao, Families Against Fentanyl, he had to start up the organization that you're helping to actually go through the CDC stats just to identify some of these trends, like, you know, the 18 to 45 and all the young kids that are dying. That's unacceptable. And that lays in the White House's lap. Third thing, why are our kids in America not being educated on these poisonous uh, uh, synthetic drugs that we've never had in the history of our country at this level? Why are we teaching them other things, which I'm not going to be political, but like, why are we teaching them things that all these families are outraged about, but we're not teaching them how to stay alive? And, the, and I'm not talking about high school kids. I'm talking about elementary, middle school kids. That's also the president's responsibility. So I'm a little upset about that, because if you tell me you want to do everything to get this under control and you're not doing some basic things, that's a problem. And I don't trust the Communist Party of China to do anything that they say they're going to do. All right. You answered that question and and more. Um, yeah. So I guess if they're saying they're going to do that, you don't trust them. Um, Mexico said they'd work with that. What about um, and I want to get back to your other points, but I want to like finish up the thought about uh, government of, of China and, and, and Mexico. The El Chapo's right. Uh, uh, Chapo Guzman's uh, sons recently uh, said that don't make fentanyl. And they, they did that in a in the way that drug traffickers communicate a few dead bodies with fentanyl pills on it. Do you trust that? Is there a movement not no, to so make fentanyl? Great, great question. I get that asked to me a lot. And I'll give you an example. Just uh, like within this week, uh, the uh, CBP seized another million plus pills coming into Arizona from Mexico. What does that mean? That means Sinaloa cartel is pumping out more pills every single day because they control everything that comes in to uh, the Arizona corridor. They control Sonora, Mexico. So everything that comes into that route is Sinaloa. So there was some chatter that was going on because a lot of these independent fentanyl traffickers that were operating in Sinaloa, allegedly they were warned that we will kill you if you sell or make fentanyl. That's because they were getting a lot of heat and they were trying to streamline and protect their operations. And they didn't want independent operators, you know, causing them more heat. Okay. But there is no indication, there is no signs from law enforcement, from CBP, or the heads of the agencies on the border that the cartels have slowed down their production of deadly fentanyl, okay? So it's another deception campaign. So let me give you a little bit of insight on something. I was just at Jamaica for the DEA's largest ever law enforcement collaborative conference in Jamaica. They call it the IDEC, International Drug Enforcement Conference. There was 130 countries, and the one country that did not show up was Mexico. So can you explain, because you're a doctor, how is it possible that America would allow that? These are our best trading partners. They're our southern border partners. The State Department's giving them gazillions of dollars. But yet the administrator of DEA puts together this unbelievable conference of cooperation, collaboration, and Mexico basically says, we're not coming, and they don't show up. Now, the public doesn't realize that. I was putting out videos because I was so upset about it. The administrator was showing the dead kids, the faces of fentanyl exhibit. She's very passionate about the kids that are dying. She's trying to make things better. 
She's not going to be successful if she doesn't get the cooperation from Mexico. It's that simple. That law enforcement is doing amazing work all over the country. I, I live this every day. But you can't solve this problem with law enforcement alone, as you know. You can't solve this with just federal law enforcement working with state and local. You need the foreign partners because that's where the command and control is in Mexico. That's where they're making it. That's where the chemicals are coming into. So we need Mexico to step up. And they're not going to because the new study reveals that the Mexican cartels are the fifth largest business enterprise in Mexico. So the corrupt leadership in Mexico is not going to want to shut down their fifth largest business. It's that simple. Wow. Well, you know, law enforcement always says we're not going to arrest our way out of the problem. Yes. But as a doctor, I could tell you, we're not going to lock naloxone our way out of the problem. Right. And we're not going to buprenorphine our way out of the problem either. So, doctor, thank you for that. Really, I trust you. You have tremendous insight. And I love reading the stuff that you write. And if you ever write things independently, please send it to me because I really like what you write. But I got to tell you, you know, it sounds very aggressive. It sounds very extreme. But I just want to tell you this analogy, and I'll keep it real simple. If you had a really massive water leak in your home and your entire ceilings were collapsing because the water up top, the pipe exploded, the water's coming down, and this happens a lot in America, okay? The first thing you have to do is shut down the main valve. And then you diagnose the leak, you fix it, whatever, and you got to clean up the mess. Well, right now, the, the broken pipe for our country is the tsunami coming out of Mexico, out of the labs in Mexico, okay? So we have to shut that down. And that can only work one of two ways. We go to Mexico and we put some pressure on them, financial pressure, diplomatic pressure, whatever, and basically ask for their support to go after these cartels like they've never been gone after and offer up U.S. capabilities, whether it's military capabilities, whether it's intel community, whatever it may be, just like we did in Colombia years ago. And if the Mexican cartels refuse to do any of that because it's not what they believe in, then the United States needs to look at this as a real serious national security threat, killing over 100,000 Americans a year, destroying families, destroying generations and our future generation, and then use some of the technologies that we use against other terrorist organizations in the world. I have no like plan ever to go and you know go to war with Mexico. We don't want to ever do that, in my opinion. But that's not what we're saying. We have very good technologies that can destroy labs and can destroy, as you know, from being in the Middle East, we've done it. We've destroyed ISIS command and control. We've destroyed it, you know, Taliban command and control, Iraqi command and control. That is how I feel because I deal with the hundreds of thousands of families that are burying their kids and didn't even know what fentanyl was. So it's getting to the point where we can't just keep throwing billions of dollars, like you said, not, you know, Narcan, naloxone is great, but that's also misleading too in many ways. Fentanyl strips are also great in some way, but in my humble opinion, you're misleading a kid if you think you could test a fentanyl pill. And as long as it doesn't test on the outside of the pill, because I've been in the labs in DEA where they showed me the only way to truly test a pill is to grind it up, put it in the water, and use these really nice fentanyl strips to detect fentanyl. So I'm not saying they're not important. Like if you have a bag of cocaine and you dip the fentanyl strip in there and there's fentanyl in it, it's a good thing. You're not going to snort the cocaine, right? Mm -hmm. But my point is, is that 
we have to be thinking of new ways of going after this because we can't keep doing the same old thing and expect different results. Right. That's the definition of insanity, right? According to Einstein, <laughs> if he said that, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if he ever said but that, but I I I, I agree with you and I very much support James Rowles and Family Against uh, Fentanyl sponsoring this this podcast. Um, you have to go to the supply. And, and I love your water analogy. To me, as a physician, stop the bleed, right? Somebody's yeah. bleeding, first stop the bleed, then clean up the mess. And, you know, um, and, and, and we kind of have it, our priorities wrong. You no, know, just because of that, the next time I have an analogy, I'm going to cite Dr. Lev's analogy <laughs> With the bleeding. If you go to an emergency room and the person's bleeding to death, what do you have to do? You right. have to stop the bleeding. Right. We got to stop the what? bleeding. I like right. it. <laughs> right. And the, the other thing that you kind of are asking about, the CDC data, you know, having worked at ONDCP, um, that data is hard to get as it is right now, but not impossible. And it's very important because you can't plan a treatment unless you know the data correctly. Right. So, for example, just today, a few minutes ago, we had um, a call with our, our county and we're doing a program with EMS giving uh, buprenorphine in the field to people who have overdosed. And I've said, and I've said this several times, we have to get the data of people who overdose and ask them, we could have EMS ask them, we could have get that data really from the emergency department as well. What was your drug of choice? What did you mean to take? Yeah, Because exactly. a good percentage, we don't know what percentage that is, but a good percentage, and I think in California, maybe even half, a big percentage of people who die or poison did not mean to take fentanyl. That's right. They meant to use methamphetamine or a Xanax pill or Adderall or whatever it is. They didn't mean that. We don't have that data. And now, you know, five years into this fentanyl crisis, we should have that and shame on us for not. Right. Having. And so, and that goes back to what I was saying before about assessing it. So what really bothers me, doctor, is this. So, you know, Washington uses these talking points, like two thirds of the deaths are related to fentanyl, right? Or seventy percent now, whatever they it's said. It's true, but and that's I, true. They they died of fentanyl, but was that their intention? Right, but here, let me finish right. this. But what I'm trying to say is that, and then I read, for an example, the New Orleans Medical Examiner reports that ninety five percent of the deaths from drugs in his area of responsibility are fentanyl related. Related. Then I read a report out of Ohio, and the ME that was there, she's no longer there. She The last one I wrote, that it was 89% of the drug deaths in Ohio and her area, Franklin County, were related to fentanyl. Now, what I'm saying is that I don't believe that only 70% of the drug deaths are fentanyl related. I think it's higher, but I have no way to, you know, prove that or because I just feel like it's common sense. That's what's in all the illicit drug supply. Well, I, I kind of do believe that data because... That data, because I know how it's obtained, it's obtained from ME um, reports on their talk screen, right? So the, the ME just has a dead body and they have the data from that body, right? They don't have all like the, the intention, why that person do it. If there's yeah. a suicide note, then they could say it's a suicide. Otherwise, they don't know. Um, but they know the talk screen results. And they'll they're, when they say 70% is fentanyl, it's because 70% of their, what they decided is, is an overdose had fentanyl in it. They may have other drugs, but we don't know the intention of that. Yeah, the intention is huge. And right. I've never, we don't know that. To be honest, 
like I've been doing this a while now and I've never thought of that, what you're saying. And that's really, really important because quite frankly, a lot of, a lot of families want murder charges, right? But right. here's what I think, doctor. I think there's a lot of people in America right now because of depression and anxiety and stress that may understand that these pills contain like fentanyl. They may or may not want to do that for a suicide too. I hate to say it, but I think there are probably not, I'm not saying a lot of people, but I think there's probably a, you know, a, a whole element of people that are looking at this as this is really powerful. It's going to put me out of my misery. Yeah, that is, that's sad and true. And that goes to the other point that you said about educating children. If we, we need to go upstream from like just teaching using, you know, having naloxone, right? We need to, and my analogy is studying from history, really. How did we stop the opioid prescription problem? Because we don't have that problem. I wish we were back into the good old days where yeah. doctors were giving too many opioids. We had half as many deaths then right. exactly. as we do now. Those were the good old days. But the way we stopped that problem was upstream, was supply. It was stopping the bleed. We had a population that was addicted to all these pills. Patients would bring me buckets of pills and I'd be, oh my God, what am I? I mean, I can't take you off of them. I just need to somehow keep you alive. That's what we're doing with buprenorphine and um, buprenorphine is a little better. So that's not, maybe not great, but that's what we're doing with naloxone. But the way we ended that problem is upstream. We said, we're going to have the next generation of Americans not addicted to opiate prescriptions in the first place. That's what we need to do with fentanyl and drugs in general. We want the next generation of Americans, kids today, to go for healthy ways of dealing with stress and anxiety and not for drugs to cover up their pain. And we're right. not doing that. We're right. Do so that's that's tremendous points. Thank you for that. I mean, it's like my understanding from what I read, and I don't research this deeply, but Peripheral research reveals that anxiety and depression and mental illnesses in America are on the rise. And that makes sense to me because of, you know, COVID and some of the anxiety, social isolation, all this stuff that went along, you know, jobs being lost, family problems, divorces, right? So the kids, their brains are like sponges and they see this happening, right? So they're turning, unfortunately, to drugs because they see mommy's taking Xanax, a legitimate Xanax pill from CVS that maybe they took the legitimate pill and they felt good, and then they wanted to get another one and the pill wasn't there, so they order it online. They go to Snapchat or whatever, Instagram, and they order a pill and then they die. They had no idea what they were taking was gonna kill them. Well, to me, some of that is education at this younger level so they can understand what they're actually buying is not gonna be healthy. It's not gonna help them, but they do need other mental health services and unfortunately, our government and has been bad for years providing these kind of services. Right. And and this is where we have a, a political divide. I was going to ask you if fentanyl is a political issue or not, but we do have a political divide because there is a segment of America that wants to normalize drug use, push marijuana, psychedelics, whatever, you know, uh, um, putting that into society. And there's another part of society that that doesn't want that that doesn't think that's 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 healthy that creates confusion right absolutely so yeah. there's a saying i've been using for years which is basic if you're a leader you have to eliminate confusion not create it so if you have a federal law that marijuana for example is illegal to possess to distribute to manufacture but all your states are moving to legalization that's what we call massive confusion dysfunctional government now Here's the point that 
I think, in my professional opinion, like people that may have smoked marijuana in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s even, you know, the marijuana may have had, you know, a very small amount of THC content, and maybe it wasn't as dangerous to the brain. Again, I'm no doctor, but some of the stuff that I've read is that a lot of these obsessive marijuana users today are actually getting involved in very violent acts, okay? And they're, you know, they're getting depressed, they're getting anxiety, the world's coming to an end, so they do a school shooting, for example. Now, I'm saying that the chemicals that are being used today are dangerous to the brain, and I'm not a doctor, this is common sense. If you're putting foreign chemicals into your brain, okay, whether you're smoking it or you're using K2, spice, bath salts, this fentanyl that's made in these clandestine labs, right? That can't be good for your brain, okay? That's my common sense. So now, you know, you're right. What's happening now with the legalization of marijuana movement in the country, these Chinese traffickers are taking total advantage and they're setting up indoor grow operations all over America. And the government is facilitating this from happening because they're letting them in the country. They're all illegals. Like, for example, Two years ago, there were 342 Chinese nationals stopped at the southern border by Border Patrol, illegally entering the country. 2023, there were 24,135, 125, apprehended by Border Patrol. 7,000% increase, just the ones that we grabbed. But then we have 1.8 million gotaways, unknown known gotaways. How many Chinese nationals are in those known gotaways? The point is, is that they're here now setting up operations all over the country, taking advantage of America's weak laws on marijuana, knowing that no one's going to prosecute them. They're making a lot of money. And at the same time, they could be harming Americans, which I believe and have said this publicly, this is part of the unrestricted warfare out of China. And, and I lived this nightmare when I was running the Special Operations Division, when Chinese labs were making the synthetic cannabinoids, the synthetic cathinones, and blitzing the country, you know, rebranding as K2 spice, bath salts, and Americans were getting very sick. I used to get calls from neighbors like, uh, Mr. Maltz, uh, you know, I found this Scooby-Doo package in my bedroom, my daughter's bedroom. What is this stuff? Well, it's liquid chemicals made in China coming to America, sprayed on leaf material, putting these little fancy packages, attracting your kids to smoke it. And now the kid's got schizophrenia or is in the hospital or maybe dying. But now it gets worse because then when they started the fentanyl and they started pumping the white, you know, the pure fentanyl into America through the websites, and then they shifted over to the, uh, the to the cartels. Now they're doing the xylazine, the nitazines, the etonitazines, the isonitazines, which are made, they, those are way more powerful synthetic opioids than fentanyl, right? Or maybe carfentanyl, which is even more you know, po you know, potent. But the xylazine is the one that gets my attention the most because, as you know, as a horse tranquilizer, an animal tranquilizer, not made for human consumption, causing necrosis. And in my simple brain, when I read necrosis is the rotten of human tissue, ding, 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 ding. That's a good way to hurt Americans. So let's start mixing xylazine with fentanyl in heroin, in meth, and we stop killing these Americans at record levels. Well, that's why the DEA administrator recently had to put out a nationwide warning. Xylazine's being found everywhere in America. Right. I, I, I do feel 
um, fentanyl is an attack on the United States. Yes. And, and 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 it, it should be declared a weapon of mass destruction, and we should yeah. be going at it uh, because this is the the number one health threat in America. I could say that as a physician, and then from your perspective, you could tell us if it's a security threat, you know, for our country. Well, hey, like I said, I I didn't go to MIT, I didn't go to Harvard, but I have really good common sense. Okay, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, but. It's common sense. If you read about unrestricted warfare, the Chinese Communist Party are pulling out all the tools in the toolbox to destabilize their adversary. Now, they figured out that America is addicted to drugs. So let's start selling these dumb Americans. And I say that not in a literal way, okay? Let's let's sell them very powerful synthetic drugs to to harm them, to kill them, whatever. Now, to me, this is a no-brainer. And now the marijuana thing is very strategically sound. It's smart because it's a little bit less on the radar for federal law enforcement and everything. Marijuana is safe. The public feels you can smoke marijuana. We don't want to put marijuana resources on marijuana cases. Well, now they're harming the brains of all these kids. Plus, you know what I heard this week from an expert that some of this Chinese-grown marijuana has certain... What do you call it? The, uh, the the dangerous what pesticides and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, they have the organophosphates. So yeah, right. <laughs> so there's no quality control. Like no, if, if the regulated marijuana that's being made, I'm being told, is very carefully regulated. So if it doesn't meet certain standards, they're not going to sell it to the public. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true, Derek. I, I don't think either, that, to be honest. I think if you go to a marijuana dispensary, are you guaranteed that you don't have the Chinese or illegal grown oh, marijuana? You have no idea. Right. So that's I guess that's the bigger point. But you know where it's really nefarious to me is about five years ago, actually 2015, 2016, the Chinese came up with a brilliant strategy. And shame on America, shame on the White House, shame on our homeland security officials. They're not connecting the dots by picking up the money from the cartels in America and laundering their money seamlessly back to the cartels. And at the same time, allowing the Chinese businessmen to take that cash and buy real estate, properties, farms. They have counterintelligence operations all over our country now, making money. They beat the uh, the capital flight laws in China, exporting more than 50 grand out of China, and the cartels get their money back instantly. They get their chemicals instantly. So they're enhancing the cartel's ability to operate more effectively, more efficiently. And we, as law enforcement, don't have the same capabilities to track them. Why? Because they use encrypted Chinese apps for communication, WeChat as an example. They use their banking apps to move money to different accounts in China after they get the cash here. And then the cartels get paid down in Mexico because they sell consumer goods down in Mexico that are shipped from China. So they're all making money. Our kids are dying. And our country's not putting it together. How does that make sense? Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I believe in deterrence. Deterrence. And, you know, you you need that upstream and downstream of, of what you're talking about. Just to mention marijuana, when I was young in my career, I never saw cases of marijuana in the emergency department. I see it every single day, multiple times a day. I can hear it, you know, in the back of my head, scrometing, patients scrometing. There's only one diagnosis that, that makes that terrible, retching, horrible sound. People have died from cannabis hyperemesis syndrome that we, that that uh, we call uh, scrometing. 
And um, to tie it back to fentanyl, if we ask patients who overdose, what's the first drug you ever used? You know, if you ask it, they'll say, oh, well, you know, maybe I used heroin or pills. I said, no, no, what's the first drug you ever used? And you get, oh, weed? Well, that was just weed. I did that when I was 12. Yeah. Nine. So, I, so I got a question for you, if you don't mind. Yeah. Because I want a professional's opinion. I don't have, I don't, I'm not qualified to give this answer. Okay. The question is, does marijuana cause anxiety or can it cause anxiety? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We we have we have the data now. Um, we use what's called the um, Bradford Hill criteria. That criteria was used to prove that tobacco causes lung cancer and heart disease, because at that time, the tobacco industry says, oh, well, those lungs are black. That's not from us. That's pollution. Prove it. And so it took many years, you know, thousands of um, articles to show to prove using the Bradford Hill criteria that tobacco causes cancer and lung disease. We've now used that same Bradford Hill criteria to show that marijuana is associated with schizophrenia and psychosis. Now, not everybody who smokes cigarettes is going to get cancer. Not everybody who uses weed is going to get schizophrenia. But if your odds were 20%, would you take that? Right. So, so, right. So, so just so I have it clear, if, you are encouraging young kids to smoke marijuana that's being sold today, which in many cases is from Chinese operators. Uh, it's it's fair to say that it's probably not that safe, and it probably shouldn't be legalized all over the country uh, because of everything we just talked about. Why do we want to encourage putting more dangerous substances in somebody's body? Yeah, we we already have the Surgeon General. Um, report on protecting the brain with marijuana. And it should not be used by anybody whose brain is growing. You know, the legal age is 21, but the brain age, the science age is 25. Um, And you shouldn't be putting anything in your brain. Right. So if you're a young kid and you're using marijuana, it could change the chemical makeup, whatever way to explain it in your brain, which causes these different mental illnesses and anxiety and depression which then caused you to say, oh, my God, I need a Xanax pill. Let me get a Xanax pill to feel better. Boom. And then I die. Well, it it primes your brain by needing extra dopamine, right? So um, addiction is a a chemical disorder, right? So you need so many units of dopamine for us to have this conversation, you know, um, on this podcast. But if you have the best day in your life, you won the lottery, you have more dopamine. Drugs give you way more than winning the lottery. And then now that becomes your normal. So if you start with marijuana, now every day you need more dopamine and then ah, you need that's more. That's a great more way more. to explain it. Now I or understand it. That, that's really smart. I mean, because then once you don't get that level, you get depressed. Right. Exactly. Then you feel bad and you need wow. it. And Thank you re- for that, because I'm going to use that one, too. You're giving me some good lines. <laughs> good. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, so that that's the thing. that And that's important. That's that's an association. And and uh, looking at the poster, the posters of all it, it's it's just it's overwhelming. Uh, how about this? OK, so let me give you according the world, according to Maul to one second. Okay. The reason you see all that is because several years ago, when I started working with the families, I started making my first collages, Lost Voices of Phantom I used to take the dead kids, put them in a collage, 90 kids on a slide. I made 25 of these things, brought them down to Congress, brought them on national TV, held people up, used to go on Fox News, hold this little girl up from California, Alex Capilouto. And now, you know, now I have to hold up military. But 
it was a way to get awareness in the minds of Congress and the national audience. Then I would get families on shows like Jim Rao. I got him on Dr. Phil because I wanted him to explain this to him. And I'm very happy that Dr. Phil played that segment when he talked about weapon and mass destruction. But we have stories like this every day. Here's this beautiful young freshman, University of North Carolina. Unfortunately, she went to see a boyfriend, I believe, at, at Duke University, another prestigious university. And she took what she thought maybe was cocaine or whatever it was, and she died. Now, the sad part is this, this girl was a very good student, right? University of North Carolina Business School. The sad part is, is that the Duke University never wanted it public. UNC never wanted it public. So it took like eight months for some school reporter to get it out. They had another death down there during the same weekend. So my goal has been to create awareness for these families so we can get some positive movement. And we've made some progress, but not fast enough for me, because as you know, there's about 300 or more a day dying on average in the country. So the problem is, is that the stigma now is so like, you know, people take that attitude. Well, they should have known better. They shouldn't have taken drugs. So I have no sympathy. Okay, well, what about this? What about this one-year-old when his mom has to go to work in New York City in the Bronx and drops him off at the daycare center? And what happened? He died because they put fentanyl in the daycare center on the mats. And what about this lady? And you were at the rally, and thank you for attending the rally, but how about little Cash in the coffin, three years old? And his mother had to say that, isn't it really sad that my addiction to drugs was solved when my baby was born. I stopped using drugs, but then my baby died from someone else's addiction. That's really sad. And so anyway, yeah, I, I, I deliberately put those up in the background because every time I'm on national news or I'm on podcasts, I want people to see that. So they go, what the heck is that in his background? Because then they may learn something. Well, Derek, you're right, because those parents, uh, those families, they're my moral compass. Yes. Um, that's where that's where it's at, um, advocating for them, hearing, listening to their voice. And I think they have the power to change things. Not me as a doctor. And not me. As and a not you. Right. They need to be, you know, screaming and and th thank you for helping them yeah, um, I mean, that's, for do that. So you know, that's what I want to do, too. Because I want to explain it. So. In the past, I would get calls from a producing, uh, sorry, a production person at one of the national news shows, and I would say, "Listen, don't put me on tomorrow. I've been on enough. I don't want to be on. I want you to get so and so on. I want you to get so and so on." I started getting all these families on. Once right. the families got on and told their stories, which are horrible, okay, then you know what happened? We started getting more attention to this on a national level. Now I can tell you firsthand because I do this one a lot. I got this letter from Alex Capaluda, the father, uh, basically say, Alex's dad, Matt, I'm sorry, please take Alex with you to Arizona. She would have been graduating from ASU this year. She was killed oh. by a single counterfeit oxycodone pill uh, that came across our border. Thank you for everything you're doing. Well, I got Matt on, on Fox News as an example, because I wanted him to tell the story of this beautiful girl. And, and so, that's the kind of stuff that I've been trying to do. It's 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 been somewhat successful, but like I said, it's not good enough. And what I'm trying to do now, which I've been unsuccessful at, which is really frustrating me, 
is I'm trying to get people to understand the following. The kids today that are under, let's just say, 21 years old, they spend a lot of time on social media, watching video reels all day long. They're obsessed with the video reels on TikTok, Instagram, so Snapchat. Okay. They don't watch the podcast, the national news. Many of them don't. And they're not getting educated on this stuff. They're not watching congressional hearings. So I'm begging the White House. I'm begging anyone that watches this or watches any show. We need professional athletes, role models, influencers, social media influencers to get on their social media and start pushing out messages. And you know why that's not happening? Because most of those people have not been properly educated that this isn't your typical drug crisis, smoking some marijuana. Because many of these professional athletes, they're smoking marijuana. And they don't want to be that guy that has to talk about drugs. So my thing is, is if the LeBron James of the world, the Tom Brady's of the world, that are good Americans that give back to kids all the time, if they knew the significance of this poisoning crisis, I guarantee you they'd step up and put messaging out. But right now they don't know. And it's frustrating me that I can't get them that message. There is one kid out in California who I'm very impressed with. I use this in every presentation I do. His name is Logan Webb. He's a star pitcher on San Francisco uh, Giants. His, his cousin, uh, Cade Webb, died at 19 two years ago. And, and Logan's been going to schools and doing the education, just like these nonprofits are doing all over the country. And the government's not providing that assistance because as far as I know, the government doesn't have full, you know, full, you know, aggressive programs to get into the schools. It's all these families trying to do it. But yeah. anyway, so we need that to educate the kids. All right. Our local, our U.S. attorney's office reached out to um, our San Diego basketball team and they did. They did a whole, they got all the different players saying, uh, warning about um I think I saw that actually, because uh, yeah. I pay attention to that. Uh, and I did see that. There's a couple of different areas that have done that. But here's, I hate to be mean when I say this, because I'm not trying to be mean. I need Steph Curry. He's got 50 million followers. I need the biggest athletes with the biggest followings. Nothing against the San Diego basketball team. I give them an A++ for effort. <laughs> but the kids are not watching their videos on social media across the country. Right. You're They're right. obsessing of these big name people. We have a sense of urgency. We have to maximize the exposure. So, A, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to misunderstand that point. I applaud the efforts of the U.S. attorney. I applaud the efforts of that team and those young athletes and the leadership. But I need big name people right now because right. this is getting worse and it's worse and the deaths keep going up. And I'm getting really, really frustrated that I can't get that. Emmett Smith, Dallas Cowboy legend, he's out there talking about the dangers of this opioid crisis. And he's an old guy like me. He's not quite my age, I don't think. But Emmett Smith is, uh, you know, he's always a great player. I watched him growing up. I loved Emmett Smith on the Cowboys. But those young kids today, they're not following him. He's retired. Yeah. Right. Right. We need the the cool young kids that they follow. Yes. Um, is this a, a, a political issue? Is fentanyl a political issue? Well, let's put it this way. Yes, the answer is it is right now. But that's why a few years ago, and I was happy to see that Dr. Gupta has even stolen my line. 
that this is not a red or a blue issue. It's a red, white, and blue issue. All Americans should care because fentanyl is not discriminating. It's going after everyone. It's killing everyone. And so that being said, it's very political now because for this current administration, it's kind of hard to say that you care about fentanyl poisoning when your board is wide open and your president has said that it's coming from the cartels. All the leadership has said it's all about the cartels. And then China has fueled this thing from day one, okay, going back you know, many, many years ago, which started to sell the pure fentanyl directly to America. I lived that nightmare. In 2014, we gave a presentation to Eric Holder, the former attorney general, and warned him during Operation Deadly Merchant that we have a perfect storm of death and destruction because the Chinese are sending pure fentanyl into America that's being mixed into heroin by the cartels and the Dominican traffickers in New England. And we started seeing a lot of deaths. And of course, nobody, including myself, understood what was coming. We had some feelings about it. And we started seeing the deaths climbing every year and chasing this thing ever since. All right. And um, unfortunately, people don't want to talk about China because if you're paying attention to the news, there's a lot of talk about the president's son who received a lot of money from Chinese businesses and things like that. So, yeah, it's very, very political. And it's sad that it has to be political. By the way, on that note, I want to tell you what I did. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that the White House, they did something very smart. And I give them credit for this. They hired a lot of social media influencers to start pushing out their campaign messages to the 18 to 25 year old class. OK, mm -hmm. now that was important because whatever they put out there, the kids are going to see. And that's the only news they're going to get on what's going on. OK, yeah. That being said, I got a hold of the list of all these people and I've been bombing them on Twitter in a very nice way, not being antagonistic, saying, hey. Since you guys have done a tremendous job getting social media messaging out on the campaign of the White House, please try to educate these kids about staying alive. Now, of course, I never heard back from anyone. I didn't expect to. But some of these social media influencers had, you know, a couple million followers. And they're very young, very talented. So why can't the White House do that? I would have an emergency meeting at the White House. I'd call all the professional sports teams. All the best doctors, you'd be there because you're fighting every day. I'd have, um, you know, Hollywood. You know, Robert De Niro's grandson just died, right? Ray Lewis's son just died. Get them up there. So we're going to teach America that this is different. We never had this before. We're going to work together. We're going to unite. We're going to save lives. We may not be able to save the supply at this point coming in. We may not have to shut that down. But we could, we could go with the demand and make sure these kids don't take it. But we need the NBA. Major League Baseball, the soccer, the women's soccer, women's basketball. We need all of you to step up. But right now, we can't get that done. We had kids in the NFL that did their uh, sponsorship on their cleats, and we wanted them to do more. NFL said, no, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. Just happened. It's really annoying. But What do you mean they can't? Why wouldn't they want to talk about fentanyl? It does seem a you. red, white, I, and blue issue. You said that much nicer than me, okay? The question is, so I'm going to tell you the story. So Lisa Dean, who's a very good friend of mine, her son, Joe Dean, died at 23 in Connecticut. She started a nonprofit, Demand Zero. She's hanging up billboards. She just did a, a presentation in the New England area. She had 8,500 kids on this one-hour, beautiful, 
training session with very, very, um, you know, dynamic speakers and keeping the attention of the kids, mandatory type education. She's made short films. She's doing all this work. She's giving canines to the police to get fentanyl. She's running around like a maniac to save lives, okay? Well, Lisa Dean, her son played football in high school in Connecticut with a kid on the Philadelphia Eagles, which is one of the best teams in the NFL. They were in the Super Bowl last year. He's an offensive player, Jack Driscoll. So he got cleats made demand zero in honor of his friend, Joe Dean, and to support the family. So Nike had a cause for cleats. I think that's what they call it. So NFL players can pick a certain cause and they could get it branded on the cleats. So that was very impressive that this young man would be willing to do that and step up with the courage. So when we wanted him to go on the news media like Fox News and others, that basically either his agent or the team, I'm not sure at what level, shut it down. They didn't want to get involved in that. Now, probably because they don't want to get involved in the drug crisis. But it's not a drug crisis. It's a disaster against our kids. And what American professional athlete that's making millions of dollars a year doesn't want to save kids? I can't imagine this any of them. Okay, now, I'm going to go a step further. But when Black Lives Matter was a big thing in America, Major League Baseball, right, they put it all over the, you know, the place. They branded it. I don't understand that stuff, to be honest with you, doctor. And I just want to say it honestly from my heart. And you kind of said it perfectly. You got me wound up. And that is, <laughs> why wouldn't they want to support this young man's effort to take it to a new new level? Yeah. That's the unknown. I don't know. I, I don't think fentanyl is a political issue itself by itself but the the methods for solutions do are are a yeah. different divide yes, you're right, right. you're a yeah. better articulator than me when it comes to that when i said it was a political issue i just say based on lack of action it's got to be political because who right. in america wouldn't want to save young kids well i think if you ask dr gupta he'd say we have a record amount of billions of dollars going to this problem. So I wouldn't say it's lack of effort. I think it's the more and more money that you're spending and the problems worse and worse and worse, kind of back to the beginning of our conversation, then we're not doing something right. Then the right. allocation is not being done right. And right. you got well, you to look at that. So thank you for bringing it up because that's another one of my pet peeves. Like in the government, because I worked in the government a long time, I know about accountability. Okay. When I went to work, I expected to be held accountable for results. And I took that very serious. I'm not just saying that, okay? If you're the drug czar and you're seeing the death numbers are going up and your spending is going up, ding, 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 something's not right. You can't just give money to these rehab centers and then run away, no accountability, no follow-up, talking to the patients, how they doing, you know, doing your studies. I don't know what they're doing, but it doesn't impress me because we're putting more money at the problem. I want to see the death rates going down. Right. Results. And that's Results. all I care about. I don't Results. care about anything else. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting in any way, am I suggesting that this current drug czar doesn't care about the problem and isn't trying to do the right thing. Right. I don't think that. As a matter of fact, I've seen some positive things that he's saying and doing. And I, I want to give credit when credit's due. But yeah. again, what's the end result? More deaths. 
Right. And I agree. I think a lot of people, regardless of their political association, care about the problem. We don't agree on on the the way to get to the solution. And I say study history. How did we do it with opiates? How did we do it with tobacco? You know, we we have models of where it works yeah. and supply matters. We can't just have it, things pouring in because why don't we have a heroin problem? Because the supply of heroin's down. Why do we have a fentanyl problem? Because of supply. It's not because we are an innate people who love fentanyl, right? So if you and I were working together and I was like your boss, you were the drug saw, I would say, doctor, I got a question for you. You spent $900 billion or whatever you spent. And I just looked at the DEA administrator's report that we went from one out of five pills with potentially lethal dose of fentanyl to seven out of 10. So we went from 20% to 70% the last few years. The deaths keep going up. Your seizures keep going up in law enforcement, doctor, drugs are. What the hell are you doing? Like, I want to know what you're doing that's actually saving lives because otherwise you're fired. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like it's that simple. Right. What would I say? You know, yeah, what would you say? What could you say to that? Oh, we're, we have free Narcan. Uh, by well, the way, I, I'll tell you what do I see Dr. Gupta saying, and then I'd say what I say. Okay. What I see Dr. Gupta saying is, but we're flattening the curve. So that shows that we're doing better. Okay. Okay. So, so he says, look, it's not going up like this anymore. The curve of deaths is flattening. So look, we're doing better. It, we are making a difference. That's what I've heard him say. What I say, that's not good enough because there's a maximum of number of people who are susceptible to deaths by by overdose, right? So we've reached that plateau. That's not okay. Right. <laughs> well, and I would say I'm not yeah. we're doing something wrong. Uh, right. and we need we to do better. Be throwing, I would, we can't be right. waving the white we can't be waving the victory need, flag. Right, right. We we like, I I'm I'm able to say when I screw up, right? I screwed up when I gave opioid prescriptions to people who didn't need them. I did that because that's what I was told to do. That was the right thing to do at the time. But I recognized that mistake and worked to fix it. That's how I yeah. got involved in this whole thing in the first place, you know, yeah. because because we screwed up. Yeah. You know. Well, look, everybody learns from our past. Everyone wants to do better and everyone should strive to do better and learn from mistakes. And that's yeah. another thing that I've been saying for the last several years that kids are supposed to learn from mistakes, not die from mistakes. Right. Okay? And many so, of them All right, died. so let, let me let you have at it. If you were president in the United States, what would you be advising? Or if you were advising the president, what needs to happen to fix this? Well, first of all, I have a sense of urgency. As you can see, I'm yelling and screaming, and you're a nice doctor from San Diego. You invited me to the podcast. So I get very emotionally attached to this because I deal with the families. Like this weekend, I'll be doing a live event down at uh, the Real America's Voice with lots of families. Uh, they were doing a two-hour special for Sunday. But it's very emotional to hear the stories. But probably what's most emotional is that when the families say they never even heard of fentanyl, they didn't know what fentanyl was, they wish they had a second chance. Okay. So I would have on day one an emergency summit at the White House. And it's kind of what I told you before. I'd be inviting the professional athletes, the celebrities, the role models, and I'd bring everyone together and have an announcement to announce a national security and a public health emergency because of these dangerous synthetic substances that are coming into America, killing Americans at record levels. That's number one. 
And I would do it without note cards. I would do it from the heart, okay? Because it doesn't take note cards to, you know, to deliver this message because kids are dying. The next thing is, is I would ask all these organizations to please support and recognize this is not, like I say, grandpa's opioid crisis, okay? This is much more severe because it's killing at record levels and it's very much, you know, really dangerous substances. These aren't legitimate opioids. This is like illicit drugs that are coming in from overseas that we have to get educated. So then I would ask, you know, everyone to think about educating those kids on the social media sites. And I would actually have accountability on that. I wouldn't just say it and then go on to the next press thing. I would be watching it grow. I'd be demanding ONDCP to get PSAs out immediately on all of these shows that kids are watching on TV, okay? I also would have in a meeting immediately in Mexico or at the White House with the highest levels of the Mexicans, and I'd put them on notice. We want to help you in every way. We know that you're good partners. We love working with Mexican. We love Mexican immigrants coming into country. You guys work really, really hard, and you're great people, but we can't, we can't do this anymore. Our kids are dying at record levels, so we need your help. We're going to offer you up military and, you know, intel community and all our, you know, technology to help you go after these guys like they've never seen before. We got to shut down that supply. And at the end of the day, if they did not actually uh, go along with that because they like the corruption down there and they like the payments, then we have to take care and stand up for American families. They have to come first. So we bring in the Pentagon and all the uh, law enforcement agencies, and we give them the direction to start destroying the command and control of the Mexican cartels using all the tools available, all the authorities. We go to Congress. We try to get laws passed. But right now, you know, I'm not an expert at some of the authorities that you have as the president, but certainly we decimated terrorists that we thought were threatening our national security. Well, there's no terrorist organization in the history of America that has killed this many Americans as the Mexican cartels working with China. Right. I would certainly... Innocent civilians. <laughs> innocent civilians. I would certainly have robust plans on um, the chemical flow a lot greater than we have today. I'd be destroying ships if I had to, that were carrying mass amounts of these poisonous chemicals, okay? I also would be actually making sure we use every treasury sanction, identify all these banks that are facilitating the money laundering. All these Chinese uh, visas on these money launders would be canceled. The Chinese nationals that are coming here, moving money, canceled. So we'd be very aggressive very quickly, and we'd save lives quickly. And we continue to do the best we can, providing the mental illness services with accountability, the rehabilitation and treatment. Now, another thing I would do, because I'm personally really uh, devastated by this, I'd go to Philadelphia. I'd have a press conference on Philadelphia. It's like the night of the living dead, just like San Francisco and other cities. I get all those people off those streets and get them in a facility, get them help because they're dying on the streets with xylazine, with fentanyl. And I don't understand why American resources can go overseas so quickly, but we can't help these people. Many of them are, you know, veterans that are homeless, and I would actually be doing a lot more to help those people that are desperately on the streets, dying in front of our eyes. I went out there one day, doctor, 
with the DEA guys, and I was videotaping stuff that I've never seen in my life in the DEA. Young kids taking needles, shooting them in the neck, shooting them in their legs. They were hitting each other in the necks with needles. I never seen anything like that. Yeah. In my days. But you have to stop. You have to stop the bleed because we've created a culture where people prefer to be homeless than housed. And and being from Southern California, we have 50% of all the unhoused people in the United States live in Southern California. We've created this incentives for them. So we got to stop the bleed and then also treat. I like it. I like that analogy. Like this, these are the little glassine bags that they put, they used to put the heroin in. Now they put the fentanyl in it. So I worked a lot of these cases in New York. And back in the day, they were putting it on the table and they were snorting it. And generally speaking, they weren't dying from snorting one bag. It was a very small amount, okay? They were getting a good high and they became very addicted. They, you know, they were addicted to it. But uh, now to see those needles, the way I was seeing those needles, it was scary. I never seen anything like that. Yeah, that's very it changed, sad. It changed it my like- view. And that's, it's not just Philadelphia where that's happening. It's all over the country now. Right. Well, I, I think those are those are good plans. I think, you know, choke the supply with all the might that the U.S. government has, that we have this might, we have this, you know, we have this disturbance. We're just not using it. Right. Have, and also, right? to be clear, I would be a big believer in accountability. If I'm giving all these rehab centers and all these different folks all this money and I don't see results, the people are going to be held accountable that are implementing these plans. Right. And I think that we we've kind of forgotten primary prevention. We've pushed so much into harm reduction. I'm not saying that that's not all bad, um, but we've pushed that into harm reduction at the expense of primary prevention. And primary prevention is teaching our youth how to deal with life's obstacles without going to drugs. Yeah, exactly. And I I'll be honest with you, doctor. I mean, again, I I don't have all the answers, but I have a, I'm entitled to my opinion. And that is, I don't understand why encouraging drug use or how encouraging drug use, safe drug use is good for anyone. And I could be wrong, you know, but I just don't see it because it it, it creates this false sense of security. Like you can use drugs, just go to this particular location to use your drugs and we'll give you clean needles and everything like that. Now, there's some benefits short term, but when they're home or they're in the streets one day, and they have some drugs. I, I, I just don't buy into a I, lot of I it. I like but. what uh, Senator or Congressman Patrick Kennedy says. It's like harm reduction means meeting people where they are, but not leaving them there. Because if you just leave them there, you're not caring. And I think exactly. a lot of what people think of is compassionate is really cruel. Yeah, it's no, that's, that's oh, my God, that's that's outstanding. I learned a lot from you today. Thank yeah. you. But that's actually really, really insightful. That That couldn't be said any better. It's yeah. actually cruel. It's cruel. It is cruel because if you believe in people, if you like people, and I've heard that from people who have been homeless and having used drugs, and it's like, I don't, I'm glad that I got out of that. I don't want to be staying there. That's not the gold standard. Um, right. And, you know, the principle of harm reductions, I asked, um, you know, Dr. Rachel Levine, H of HSS, when they just first started this whole harm reduction, what is a definition? I want to understand what it means. So I, I want to know if I agree with it or not. Harm reduction is minimizing harms to somebody who has a disease. You have cancer. You're going to die of cancer. We're not going to try to cure your cancer because it's too far out. We're just going to try to keep you alive and keep you comfortable while you have it. So there's a role for a sub-segment of the population 
won't have that. Te- but wouldn't it be better to eliminate cancer in the first place or prevent you from getting it? And yeah, instead of putting true. all our effort, we, we're putting a lot of effort on a subset of population that deserve it. But they're like what you said you saw in Pennsylvania. And But you're just going to continue feeding the pipeline if we don't stop the bleed. Yeah. Right? No, it's it's very, very good. I agree. Yeah. So, 100%. all right. So good. So I get to join your, your commission on day one that you're at the White House. 100%. I'm not <laughs> going to be ever named the president, but I do have some good suggestions I think would work and do a lot better than what we're doing. But unfortunately, when people hear like, military assets against the cartels. I mean, I went, by the way, six years ago with Sarah Carter and one of the mothers in Ohio to the Ohio Congress. It was actually, that was actually four plus years ago, not six years ago. I lose track sometimes. And we testified that we feel that the cartels should be declared terrorists, that we need to use all U.S. authorities against them. And almost unanimously, the House and the Senate in Ohio voted in in support of that. Now, the problem was at that time, President Trump was getting the bureaucrats in the Beltway, specifically State Department, that basically felt that that was totally off course, that was off base. He he wanted to declare them terrorists. He spoke about that frequently. Unfortunately, he never did because he got the bad advice. Now, isn't it interesting that former Attorney General Bill Barr, if you listen to him, Recently, he was on Newsmax, I know for a fact, because I have the clip, when he talks about that the Mexican cartels can no longer be treated as a criminal organization because it's failed. We have to treat them as like an ISIS, and we have to decimate them. And he was very straightforward, and he's right on the money. But we were saying that many years ago, and President Trump was getting the bad advice, and they never did it. What do you say to people... I want to get your talking points on this. What do you say to people who say the war on drug failed? And if you go after these cartels in this way, you're actually increasing the black market instead of just legalizing drugs. And then you don't have a black market and you don't have these cartels. So you're actually creating terrorists if you're going. First of all, number one, there's never been a war on drugs. And this is why. Because if you have a war, You use missiles, you use bombs, you use weapons, and you decimate your enemy. We've never done that. The closest we ever came, which was very successful, is we worked collaboratively with the Colombian National Police and the Colombian military. We provided U.S. assets, and we actually did a really good job for a period of time in Colombia decimating leadership in the cartels, like Pablo Escobar, as an example, right? But We became way too soft. We lost track of how these bad guys were elevating and getting more and more, you know, complex and more sophisticated. And so I don't believe in that term. What I would say is that if the DEA administrator is saying that seven out of 10 pills that are analyzed in the lab have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl based on the two milligram, you know, analysis, then I would say, thank God we have law enforcement going after these networks every day and taking millions and millions and millions of pills. I mean, DEA seized already like probably 70 million pills now this year alone. It's probably more than that. The last time I checked, it was 68 million. If you times 70 million times 70%, that's a lot of Americans that the DEA working with their partners have saved. 
So there's a lot of value to what the law enforcement has done. But again, law enforcement can't solve this alone at this point. And I agree with the former attorney general in that, you know, we've been saying this for years, that they can't be treated as criminal networks because the U.S. law enforcement has indicted so many of these kingpins that the Mexican government won't even go pick up or they don't always extradite them. They play political games with that as well. So it's not a real war. A real war is to use the best and brightest American patriots with the greatest authorities, the greatest tools, and decimate the enemy. So you send a powerful message to the world that you don't kill our kids because we're going to take that serious. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors uh, with that whole war on drug thing. Now, there was a second part of your question. I just lost my thought, but I wanted to address it. So is it addition to the uh, war on drugs? What was the second part? What do you say that if you, you go after those criminals, you're actually increasing the okay. black market? So perfect example is the legal marijuana trade. Yeah. So we legalize marijuana in these different states. The prosecutors don't prosecute. Everyone's high, smoking weed. Great. And then the Chinese come in and the Mexicans come in and they totally undercut all those regulated high taxed substances. And then they produce stuff that's half the price or a quarter of the price. And everyone goes to the black market and buys it from the cartels. So I don't understand if you legalize. And by the way, anybody that makes that argument, here's my suggestion. Take your family and go to Oregon right now, Portland, Oregon, and go downtown and have dinner and walk around and then go to San Francisco with your family. Because when you legalize drugs and you have a lax attitude on crime and drugs, it's, it's almost like a war zone. The homeless are everywhere. The aggressive you know, homeless it, are everywhere. It, it, the drugs, it's embarrassing. It, it, embarrassing. It's worse than a third world country. Yeah. If you go to a third world country, it looks better than, than those yeah. areas. So the experiments of legalization of drugs has failed. We have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Even the voters in Oregon are now scratching their head. Oh, why did I do that? Because elections have consequences and voting to legalize poisonous substances has consequences. Right. Again, your appearance of compassionate ends up being cruel. You thought you were being compassionate, but, yeah. but, the, but I mean, the outcome look, Back in the bad. day, you smoked some joints. You're not, you're not harming people. It was kind of like no big deal, whatever. But now it's a different ballgame. And you confirmed everything that I've been saying. As I'm not a doctor because the marijuana today is definitely... <laughs> causing some issues in our right. in our future generation, especially. Right. Derek, I, I love your passionate, enthusiastic. You, you have your head on straight. You're getting your morals from the right people. We are the, you know, the people from behind you. I so appreciate your service to your country um, and what you're doing for these families. I think that that's where it's at. I appreciate that so much. And thank, thank you, you so for much. taking the time. Two things real quick. Number one, the reason I'm really passionate today more than ever is because it's the families, these nonprofits, it's an army in America of so, so much passion, so much love for others. No one's looking at skin color. No one's looking at race. No one cares about that. All these families want to do is prevent some other mother and father waking up and have to see that their loved one died. So that is such a really important thing to say to everyone because that's inspiring to me. That's why I get more and more momentum, more and more passionate, because the more people I talk to, the more stories I hear, 
the more fired up I get because I, I really want to help them. All right. And this last thing I want to say, only because I thought it was neat. I was on San Diego uh, live news the other morning. Uh, I just can't remember how the station, the guy did a tremendous job. So I don't know if you saw it, but it was, it was a good episode on San Diego live news. So I'll check it out. Anyway, well, it was awesome. And thank you for everything that you're doing, because, you know, again, we all got to learn from each other. We all got to come up with ideas and solutions. That's what I've always said. America is loaded with really, really brilliant people. If you put aside the agendas and the politics and you come in to save lives, we could do it. I feel very confident we could do it. And unfortunately, when you get the politicians involved and there's all these other agendas, it's dysfunctional. It doesn't get done. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org to learn more. High Truth's producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more. High Truths.